friends. Welcome back to the Hamilcast. I am Jillian. I'm Bianca. Today we are joined by my husband, Mike, Michael Paul Smith. Hello, ham fans. In the flesh. And we are joined via Skype, Nicole from the AHA Society. Hey, Nicole. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me back. We're so excited to have you, especially because this episode will air on July 4th. Happy Independence Day, everyone. Okay, so we're going to get into uh, Chapter 15, Villainous Business of Chernow, and we're going to talk about all the Celebrate Ham events that the AHA Society has going on this summer, because there's a ton of stuff to talk about. But right before we recorded, Nicole dropped a little historical bomb on us about... (laughs) July 4th isn't Independence Day? What's going on there? Well, I guess if you want to really get into it, you could say our Independence Day was when Britain signed the peace treaty. But Congress actually voted for independence on July 2nd. It was just that the paperwork was signed two days later on July 4th. So that's why you see the big July 4th on the document. And so people just started using that date instead. But our actual declaration of independence and the vote that Congress took was on July 2nd. Wow. And they all, and Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they all sort of trickled in over the intervening days, right? And not everybody was in the room at the same time to sign the document. Oh, right. Yes. So, in fact, I believe on July 4th, only the secretary and the president signed the document. Right. And then most of the delegates signed on August 2nd, a month later. Ah. And even then, people were still adding their names over the remaining months as yeah. well. So. There's a There's a great scene in the John Adams miniseries where John Adams by then an, an elderly curmudgeon saw that famous painting of all the founding fathers signing the document and he hated it it's this amazing painting it's gigantic and he's like this is un- this is complete fabrication none of these people were in the room at the same time this is just <laughs> nonsense and it was like a whole thing in fact John Adams had written a letter that saying that this day will be celebrated with fireworks and parades and all sorts of celebrations referring to July 2nd is the day that will survive as our nation's independence mm. day. Close enough. Close <laughs> yeah. enough. Jay Adams. I also don't think it took that. Jay Adams. I don't think he was really that far from being a curmudgeon. I think he was always like, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, like always kind of simmering, just ready to go to a boil to oh, full yeah. curmudgeon. When he asked uh, Thomas Jefferson to write the Declaration, he said, "Because I am obnoxious and you are very much otherwise," or something to that effect. He part of the reason he asked him to write it was because he knew that he wasn't the most popular guy. <laughs> he sure wasn't. <laughs> Even George Washington would make fun of him sometimes, as we read about mm-hmm. in Chernow. Anyway, this is not a John Adams Hamilcast. <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with it. So Nicole, so tell us. Everything you guys have going on for Celebrate Ham this summer, how can we get involved? How can we, where can we go? What are you doing? Tell us absolutely everything. Okay, so Hamilton Mania has taken full force this summer. It's like the Beatles Beatles on it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yes. So for all of you out there suffering from Hamilaria, we encourage you to join us. We have over 30 events now for our Celebrate Hamilton program at historical sites all throughout New York and New Jersey. And for those of you that aren't able to attend in person, we will be doing live Periscope broadcasts. So follow us through Periscope at the AHA Society. And we'll also be doing live Twitter and a lot of other things so that you can still be a part of the action throughout that full week and a half or so that we're holding events. Is that handle at AHA Society? Is there an underscore involved or? Nope, no underscore, just at the AHA Society on on all the social media. Perfect. Yeah. So diving right in with some of the events, um, I apologize in advance because there's so many 
amazing things going on. And if you have been maybe wanting to go visit a site, a historic site, and you just haven't yet gotten there, or you're really curious about something that you've read about that Hamilton visited, this is a really great time for you to come to these sites because in addition to seeing the sites, we have a lot of really special presentations planned, talks planned, behind the scenes, tours, walking tours, and even a lot of special exhibits that will only be on display during our events. So again, I really encourage if you can come out. We are kicking off our Celebrate Hamilton events at John Jay's house, which is the John Jay Homestead up in Katona, New York. So it's just in Westchester County on July 6th. And John Jay gets a really small shout out in the musical when they talk about how John Jay wrote five of the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. But he and Hamilton were really two of the most important founding fathers. And again, and up until now, Hamilton was not known. And, and John Jay still deserves a lot of uh, more recognition. So if you'd like to learn ab- about John Jay, as well as his relationship with Alexander Hamilton, we're having a full all-day Founding Fathers from New York series up at the John Jay Homestead. On the July 7th and 8th, we are having a Young Immigrant Hamilton tour. So most people don't know that when Hamilton first came to the Caribbean, before he went to King's College, he actually had to go to a preparatory academy because he didn't know, he hadn't had enough formal schooling to actually get into college. So he went over to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he lived with the Boudinot family and William Livingston, who later became New Jersey's governor. And so we are visiting both of their homes, and we are also having events, a full-day festival on the site where Hamilton went to school at the academy. And it's really going to be amazing. We have some new Hamilton discoveries that this will be the first public viewing of these new documents that have been discovered about Hamilton. For over 200 years, they have just sat in storage and no one has known about them and they were just recently discovered. So, Can you give us some hints about what what they are or what they may be or is it under wraps until they're unveiled at the event? It's it's under wraps, (gasps) so if you want to know all the details, I definitely encourage you to attend that event at the Liberty Hall Museum. And we are also having, as part of the all-day festival at the Snyder Academy, we have John Rua, who plays Charles Lee in the musical, and he's also the understudy for Hamilton. And I actually saw him as Hamilton on Broadway, and he's simply amazing. And he will be appearing for a question and answer session at the Snyder Academy on that Friday, July 8th. So definitely don't miss that. That's awesome. And is it he's he's from around there, isn't he? Or is he from Yeah, he was actually born in Elizabeth, so it's a bit of a homecoming for him. That's so cool. Cool. Yeah, and we also were unveiling a brand new portrait for of Hamilton that has been commissioned and there'll be a reading of a Hamilton play about Hamilton when he was a young immigrant. That's really well done. I, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And that'll actually be a free performance. So most of these events are free. So definitely you'll want to come to as many as you can. Yeah, they sound incredible I'm so, so far. I'm so curious about the the hidden the secret, secret documents. documents. <laughs> I picture like a Mike Indiana Jones situation. Yeah. Did somebody take them and try to put a bag of rocks in their place and then a whole a boulder comes after them and they have to run? <laughs> we'll just have to find out and see. I don't know. But yeah. now, of course, it's like, you Gotta know. Gotta be there in person. <laughs> they belong in a museum. That was his life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so all that's happening on the 7th? Is that what you said? On the 7th and the 8th throughout Elizabeth and Union, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. And then, so moving on to the 9th, which is a Saturday, we are having a full day of events at Hamilton's home, the Grange, and we're actually kicking off the events. Um, I, I know you guys are a fan of the Hamilton Soul Cycle. Bianca is. <laughs> Bianca okay, is. Bianca. <laughs> I, I've, I've yet to venture to oh, it. I'm a little scared. I think it's safe to say we're all fans. Bianca's yes, just happened to participate. That's true. We're yeah. all going. Okay, well, yes. if you are a Hamilton fan and you enjoy physical activity, you can actually join in on the Hamilton Fun Run. And it's going to be a five-mile run starting at Hamilton's home. You're going to run past the Morris Jamal Mansion, the Hamilton, or sorry, the Washington and Lafayette statue in Uptown, and then come back to the Hamilton's home and the AHA Society is going to welcome everyone in true Hamiltonian hospitality to Hamilton's home there. And we have a lot of other events planned and we have, I, at this moment, can't say anything about it publicly, but we have a really special announcement planned at the Grange. So if you can come to that, we'll have some really exciting news. I also love the term Hamiltonian hospitality. Someone's got to write a cookbook yeah. and call it <laughs> Hamiltonian hospitality. Nicole, is that during the run, uh, are the runners going to stop at the statue or is it going to be like a nonstop kind of situation? Man, the man is nonstop. How, how good of a runner do you have to be? Because five miles is like, that's not a, that's not a small run. That's a really good question. They definitely take an easy pace and they do stop along the way. I think it's five mile five miles total, and okay. they aim for about a ten minute mile. And there there are faster groups and slower groups. So good. So no need for people to be intimidated by the five miles. No, absolutely not. Yeah, you you'll find your own group of people to run with. They they break it up. So you definitely all are welcome if you enjoy running. Cool. And and that's actually in partnership with In Shape Fitness. They've been doing this uh, fun run for twelve thirteen years, I believe now. And this is our actual fifth Celebrate Hamilton program, and we've been partnering up with them for the past five years to welcome them at Hamilton's home. Wow. Cool. Where have we been this whole time? Not, run, not running. <laughs> not That's running. What we've been doing. Sitting here. <laughs> so moving on to Sunday, July 10th, we have, and this actually ties in a little bit with chapter 15, which we'll get into, but Patterson was actually the first industrial city, planned industrial city, founded in the United States by none other than Alexander Hamilton. And this year is the 225th anniversary of the establishment of the Society for Establishing Useful Manufacturers, which was essentially Hamilton's incubator for industry that he created along with other men to help foster industry and develop manufacturing in the U.S. So we're celebrating this anniversary in a really cool way. Hamilton first came across Patterson back in 1778. He was having a picnic at the Passaic Falls with Lafayette in Washington and some other people, and they were just really impressed by the falls. And so flash forward to the 1790s, Hamilton remembered that site and thought, hey, we can use that water to, and harness it to build mills and start using that as a source for energy for these manufacturing um, factories that we want to open. And so we're actually, to celebrate this, we're going to have a picnic with Hamilton, Washington, and Lafayette at the falls. And so we encourage everyone to bring their own picnic food. And it's just going to be a really nice day by the falls. We're going to have a walking tour. And there's a really beautiful Hamilton statue overlooking the falls. And it's actually the largest falls besides Niagara Falls west of the sorry east of the mississippi river so if you've never been out it's a national park site and it's just a gorgeous park to walk around as well wow. that sounds 
really amazing. Yeah, you can have a picnic right around where Ham himself had a picnic. I yeah, know. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to have historical interpreters there dressed up as Washington and Hamilton, so you can interact with them while you eat and everything. What? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they're all listening to a certain musical so that they'll understand all the references that are being thrown <laughs> mm-hmm. at them left and right. And yeah. I also love that that's what Ham does on a, on a nice, relaxing picnic. He's like, you know what? Let's just build something... Let's make a committee about building things and let's just do that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, pass the jam. Yeah. I kind of yeah. love that three bros can go out and have a picnic just in general. Right? They loved each other. Yeah. Oh, and their <laughs> their picnic food, by the way, was um, ham, which is appropriate. <laughs> Perfect. And I think they also had bread and tongue. Ooh. So <laughs> you can feel free to bring that or other things. Can I ask a, yeah. a question? How do you yeah. How do you happen to know that? <laughs> Was that written somewhere? Did they write it in a letter to somebody? How does that... Because the information you have is so fascinating, and I'm so curious how you came about knowing that. Yes, that is actually... I think James McHenry wrote that down in a letter. And if you all are interested, you can go to... It's called Founders Online. And I think I might have mentioned this before, but you can view all of these letters on your own. You can search. I'm interested in correspondence between... Hamilton and Washington and you can read all of their letters and you know it's just such an amazing service that we have that the government has provided us so this is by no means behind closed doors information you can go out and look up whatever you're interested in Mm -hmm. but it was diaries and letters I assume right that those are the two main sources of of those little details yeah it's just fascinating to me how how you can come about this information Mm -hmm. yeah oh it's fun reading it too because especially Hamilton he has so much wit when you read his letters, I just laugh so much because he's really a hilarious correspondent. Well, anyway, so moving on to Monday, which is July 11th, which is the anniversary of the Hamilton duel. Mm. And so one of the highlights of that day, we are having our annual gathering at the Weehawken. It's actually at the Hamilton Memorial, which overlooks the original dueling grounds. Mm-hmm. And so every year we gather there and we have a different program. And then Thomas Fleming, who wrote the book, The Duel, he is actually our featured speaker that evening in Weehawken. And again, that talk is also free. Cool. That's amazing. I love that all these events are free too. That's that's really awesome. So many people can take part in them. Yeah, we work really hard to make it open to as many people as possible. I wish we could take a, a boat or a canoe over to Weehawken just like Ham did. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There are 10 things you need to know. Number one. Across the Hudson at dawn. Actually, five years ago, we, for our first event at Weehawken, we took the ferry over to follow the same path that Hamilton would have followed. And you can also take the ferry, and it's pretty convenient. It takes you right over to the docks there, and then there's, I mean, it's kind of a crazy path, but then you can walk up the cliff and join us up at Hamilton Park there. That is so morbidly awesome that you could take the same. <laughs> yeah. So if you really want to get into it, absolutely take the ferry over. Yeah, for history nerds, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, Mike always says that, especially walking around the city and you see plaques every once in a while and just to, you always are in, in awe that you can stand in a spot where something happened and okay, sure, there's a Dwayne Reed right across the street or a Starbucks, but still in that moment, in that space. Yes. It's kind of incredible. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, and New York has so much history, and it's great that the musical is letting people know more about how much a role New York played, not only in the Revolutionary War, but then, you know, it was the first capital uh, under the U.S. Constitution. So it's 
it's really amazing how much is still accessible today. Yeah. And then moving on to Tuesday, which is the anniversary of when Hamilton passed away, because he actually passed away the following day after the duel. We have mm-hmm. our annual remembrance at Trinity Church, where he's buried. And so we'll be having a graveside remembrance ceremony outside. And then inside, we will be having our keynote speaker, who is Richard Brookheiser. He wrote one of the most popular biographies on Hamilton besides Chernow's, and actually preceded Chernow's. And so he'll be our keynote speaker, and he'll be accepting a Hamiltonian Legacy Award on behalf of the AHA Society there. And then following his talk, you will be able to view original Hamilton documents from the Trinity Church archive. Wow. Yeah, so you can actually view the baptismal records from some of Hamilton's children that were baptized there, as well as his pew rental that he had at Trinity Church. And Hamilton also did a lot of work, pro bono work, on behalf of the church uh, to help them get set up and everything. So they have records of that as well. And that'll all be on display on on Tuesday. We're sitting here and the three of us are just in complete awe, Nicole, of everything you're saying. (laughs) And just that you're making everything so accessible. I think it's just so wonderful what you guys are doing now that the show has made so many people so interested and now they they have the ability to go and it's not $847 the tickets are now you can just go you just get yourself there and hang out absolutely and you know I just want to disclaim that I haven't even mentioned all of the events we have planned that's showing you how much we have going on I'm just going over some of the big highlights that we have so I really encourage you to check out our website is everything is everything listed in full on the the website? Yes, you can go to celebratehamilton.com and it'll give you the full schedule of events. And wrapping up our Celebrate Hamilton program, um, you can actually follow Angelica and Eliza's advice to run away for the summer and go upstate. <laughs> Take a break. You know I have to get my plan through Congress. Away with us for the summer. Let's go upstate. We're exploring different sites related to Hamilton up in the Hudson Valley because he spent a lot of time there as well. And so some of the really amazing highlights that we have going on for that weekend, which is July 15th to the 17th, so it's just the following weekend, will be a talk inside James Alexander Hamilton, who was one of Hamilton's sons. He actually named his home Nevis after his father. And today it is actually part of Columbia University, very fittingly. And it's called Nevis Labs, and it's never open to the public. And we received special permission to hold a talk on um, ha- on Alexander Hamilton inside James James's home there. That, that is, is so awesome. Cool. Wait, so so Columbia University owns it? Yes, it's a laboratory, and so they do. Oh, but the stu- students go there. I think it's used more for experiments, and so probably more for research purposes. I don't think students get up there. It's it's a little bit out of the city. It's up in. Um, Irvington near Dobbs Ferry. Oh, sure, yeah. I see. That's crazy. That's awesome. Was Hamilton a drinker? Do you guys know? I mean, sure, Nicole. <laughs> yeah, he did enjoy wine. He was not a fan of excessive drinking, which keep in mind at the time, it was considered more safe to drink beer than water. So even as a child, you're drinking alcohol all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a really funny letter, again, I think from James McHenry, who was really good friends with Hamilton. When Hamilton became sick one time, 
James McHenry prescribed him this very detailed diet of what he should eat and what he should drink. And he said, um, you shouldn't drink more than three glasses of wine a day <laughs> is the prescription uh, that he received. That's, so. yeah. I, the reason I asked was because as soon as you said Hudson Valley, when I, when someone says Hudson Valley, I think wine mm, because they have wine. like, they have really good vineyards up there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can so. definitely check out some of those in between the events for sure. Yeah. No more than three glasses. No, no more than three, three glasses. glasses. Yeah. We're going to cut you off at three. Follow Mike. McHenry's <laughs> advice. <laughs> and then one of the last events I wanted to tell you about is that, I'm sure you're familiar with Sleepy Hollow, the cemetery. Sure, of course. What you probably don't know is that the Hamilton children, when they were older, they were really good friends with Washington Irving. Whoa. And actually, 30 of Hamilton's descendants are all buried in Sleepy Hollow, including three of his children. So we're going to do a walking tour to learn more about the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of both Alexander and Eliza. Wow, 30? Did you say 30 of his relatives? There's over 30 of his of the Hamiltons buried at Sleepy Hollow, and they all have fascinating stories of their own right. So I'm really excited about that tour. Wow. And did you say the date of that one, Nicole? Oh, yes, that is Sunday, July 17th. So that'll oh, okay. be the final day cool. of Celebrate Hamilton. I haven't been up to Sleepy Hollow in a, a long time, but I keep... I keep wanting to go back every year. I'm like, I should every be that, Halloween, that I think person I go who goes to Sleepy Hollow for Halloween. Yeah. I'm sure they're happy to get a nice influx of people hanging out, not in October. Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so again, that that's some of the highlights. There's over 30 events happening, a lot of different exhibits and walking tours and everything you could imagine. Other than um, your the Twitter and social media, what is the website that people can check? Because it says on the website when I was checking today to come back and there are going to be updates and maybe more things. So where can people go to get the absolute up-to-date information? You can go to CelebrateHamilton.com. No spaces, just CelebrateHamilton.com. Perfect. Well, everyone's pretty booked for the next couple of weeks, I think. I'm already working it out of my head. <laughs> All right, Nicole, do you want to jump into one of my favorite chapter titles to date, Villainous Business? Let's this, get into this business. Yeah, this is... It <laughs> sounds so juicy. It sounds so juicy, and it's juicy in the sense it's where there... It's juicy in the sense that there's it's dense. Like, Again, I, feel like we I know we say keep that saying all the time. <laughs> we call Chernow dense as often as I apologize for audio things that people hear Just in the background that they never end up hearing. With the drinking it's game at me. home. This has, I think, the most actual... Uh, financial speak than any of the other chapters i think right so far i mean yeah. i don't know what's what so lies far. ahead <laughs> yeah this is the chapter where you first get introduced to well hamilton has just become secretary of treasury so he hits the ground running get all getting all of his financial systems in place so it goes really in depth into the report on public credit and so don't feel bad because not even the congressman at the time understood it so if you don't follow along you know you're doing you're doing okay so nicole it took me a long time to write this outline because i just i wanted to make sure if i'm writing an outline that we're gonna now i'm just gonna use the word publish because it makes me feel like ham but uh if we're gonna publish it i want it to be accurate so i was asking mike we were like going through paragraphs he was like read that read those two sentences again like i was just like i don't under stand. Uh, but before we go into all the financial stuff, it explains how he created the Coast Guard. Just real quick, one of his his first things that he did was set up the custom service. And then he was noticing that the numbers weren't really working out very well, or he thought that they were very low. So he knew all about smugglers and, and everything from his time in the Caribbean. So he decided to set up boats that would go up and down the coast, hence the Coast Guard. 
to figure it out. And he micromanaged the hell out of every single person involved mm -hmm. and did all the math himself to make sure that everything was on the up and up, as, mm -hmm. as Burr says. But yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, that we really got down to the nitty gritty of how how he he started the Coast Guard because that's not I don't want to I don't like the term throwaway line but that's something that Lynn just kind of put in there in one in one sentence just yeah he tried to fit it in to at least mention it it's like an easter egg yeah yeah so now we know yeah and I actually on Coast Guard Day August 4th last year I did a presentation on Alexander Hamilton founding the Coast Guard to a bunch of Coast Guardsmen and so that was really interesting because you know they know he's the founder but when you really go in depth and realize everything he did because like you said he wasn't just creating these huge macro systems but he was writing to every single port collector and every single you know port warden and saying I want to know what your coastline looks like. I want to know how many miles it is. I want to know what kind of goods are coming in. I want to know how, the quantity, how much, what is smuggling like in your area. Do you think we need to put a lighthouse in your area? He got down to every single detail to make sure that um, shipping would be safe and that it would be properly taxed. And he was supposed to be writing that credit report. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That ended up being 40,000 words, but he had plenty of things to do. So to micromanage all this, I mean, I know it was important, but there was so much for him to be doing. But that was one of the first things that he wanted to focus on. Yeah, well, there was no Google, so he had to find out all these. He had to get all of the data in order to even write the report. And, you know, it, it, again, like you mentioned, he wasn't just rewriting a 40,000 word report. But on top of that, he was creating the Lighthouse Establishment, which later became part of the Coast Guard. He set up customs. As Chernow says, he set up the systems for bookkeeping, checking, and auditing that lasted for decades and decades. So it's just crazy. <laughs> but I guess in a sense, there it's all connected to what he was going to be doing anyway with that credit report. It's all kind of... Yeah, and I think it's around this time where they say that um, they started moving towards a system of using paper money and not just coins. Yeah. Um, because they also allowed payments to be made on banknotes from the Bank of New York. And that was actually because of Hamilton as well, because most people were against that. But he thought that that was necessary. Why were they against it? Well, because at the time, if you think about it, their experience with the Continentals, not worth a Continental, is because the government just printed paper money whenever it needed it. So oh, then right. it became yes. totally worthless and it wasn't backed by anything. So people would only accept hard specie, which was gold or silver or something else as payment. And so there was a lot of distrust of paper money because it was too easy to abuse. So that's why Hamilton thought, well, at the, rather than having paper money per se, we can let government bonds, which will be backed by the government, so it can't be subject to just printing and printing, hopefully, um, that it would be a more reliable source, but it would also inject some liquidity into the system because people couldn't even make basic transactions they, you know, couldn't pay their taxes if they didn't have hard currency. So that really, as, um, and actually, almost all of chapter 15 is summed up really nicely in the cabinet battle number one. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative. That, that was exactly what Hamilton's vision was. Uh, with the paper money or well with the government bonds that function like paper money and there's also this this whole conversation about what madison was completely against about with the speculators and the 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 bonds and the ious and once hamilton's debt plan kind of came into effect who reaps the rewards of those 
of that? Should it be the people that sold their their bonds at because they were desperate, or is it should it be the the people who who have the bonds now? Uh, and he had to. He just thought in the long run, it kind of sucks to tell you know these poor soldiers or people who didn't have any money that they couldn't reap the reward the rewards. But in the future, it meant that government couldn't meddle in transactions that were said and done already. Yeah, and that's such an important point. It's something we really take for granted today. But look how easily it could have gone the other way if Madison's plan had been approved. Can you imagine today that you buy something from someone? And you turn around and sell it from a profit and the government can come in and tell you, oh, well, you need to give that money back to that other person you bought it from. It's not fair that you made that profit. It just is so unworkable in real life. But we live with the basis of respecting contracts and property and property law because of Hamilton. It's not that that was a given, as you can see from these really fierce debates that they had in the 1790s. And it does make sense. I mean, it sucks that these people, they were desperate. It was the, their last, it was the last ditch effort to get some money. So, and, and Madison was just totally personal and Ham was all business about it. Yeah, well, and if you, and the thing to keep in mind is that Hamilton in the 1780s was very frustrated with Congress and it was because of Congress that these bonds were worth nothing. Congress was so dis- dysfunctional that, and they weren't paying any debt, but again, they, couldn't raise funds to pay the debt. And that's why these bonds were so worthless. And so because Congress decided to pay these soldiers all the money that they were earned in these bonds, but then it was so ineffectual. The whole system was just so ineffectual that they were worth nothing. That's why Hamilton felt so passionately about making the system perfect in its place so that that wouldn't happen to the next generation of war veterans, that they could know that their money would be backed by the government and it would be paid off. And that's why he thought credit was so important because he agreed 100% that it wasn't fair. He, alongside all of his other Revolutionary War buddies, were suffering because of this really ineffectual system. Mike, what were you saying when we were talking about this, about confidence? Yeah, just the the importance of of confidence in in the economy. I mean, it it goes all the way back to him, right? I mean, people had to be confident in investing to invest their money. That's basically it, yeah. And I thought of Ron Swanson before when... Uh, the Swanson period of pyramid of greatness from yes. Parks and Rec. One of the things on the pyramid was property rights. So you can thank <laughs> Cam for that, Ron Swanson. Yeah, property rights. <laughs> property rights. I think of random uh, pop culture references. Hey, well, you married the right woman. We love you for it. <laughs> and we also get into. I know this. I mean, it really has nothing to do with the Reynolds pamphlet, but I couldn't not think about it with all this talk of separate accounts. We have the check stubs from separate accounts. The sinking fund and the separate accounts. I was like, oh, interesting, because Chernow even says it worked really well, but Hamilton at the at the time had no idea the success of it would would bite him. Oh, I think I think he's foreshadowing the um, credit bubble that he had to then subdue because his programs were so popular and so successful that not only was it considered um, viable, but everyone bought up all the securities, created this financial bubble that then collapsed really quickly. And so Hamilton had to resolve the first financial bubble in the US. Actually, we should go back and, and explain what that sinking fund is. Yes, that is very important. So basically, and I have to preface this because Chernow also goes into the chapter, uh, discusses in the chapter how Hamilton is so, one of his misquoted statements is, a national debt will lead to a national blessing. What everyone leaves out is not only did he say a national debt, if not excessive, 
will be a national blessing. He was A, referring to the fact that we already had debt from the war, so let's harness that and let it do something beneficial for our government. But then throughout the rest of the report on public credit, as well as all of his other financial documents, he constantly says that we should not rack up debt. So even at the time, people were misquoting him, and that still persists 200 years later that people say, oh, Hamilton was a fan of debt. Hamilton racked up debt. And that's really not true. And that's where the sinking funds, which he created, was so important, where he basically created this account where money coming in to the government, a portion of it would be placed into this account, and it was untouchable. So say the government was low on funds, they couldn't dip their hands in and pull out money promising to put money back in. It was untouchable, and the money went specifically to paying off the debt. And so it was regularly paid on time, and that was another major function of developing credit for the U.S. And in fact, it's pretty funny that Thomas Jefferson gets credit for paying off the national debt because it was through Hamilton's sinking fund that he had established that the payments would be timed to end 20 years later or so, that it would be paid off. And so it did, according to Hamilton's system, but for some reason, Jefferson still gets credit for paying off the national debt. That's so funny. Wait, I didn't know he gets credit for that. Well, maybe just among historians, but... (laughs) A A good politician knows when to take credit for something. Oh, Jefferson was a pro at that. It's like when the hostage crisis was resolved when Reagan got inaugurated in 1980, but he had just been inaugurated. Carter was doing all the negotiations, but Reagan Reagan was happy to take credit for it because he's president now. Sure. So it's like, yeah, sign yeah, me up. Not a new invention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of amazing how similar a lot of a lot of things that pop up while I'm reading Churn now, and I'm like, oh, that's oh, it great. Always keeps oh, great. Coming that, back. We still, we, that's By the been... way, another pop culture reference in this week's episode of Veep. Uh, there's a joke about printing money. Gary, Gary, like the bag man, he has no concept of like, e- economics. So, so somebody asks him, "What is she going to do about the economic situation?" And he goes, "Well, we can just print the money. I don't know what. I don't understand what the big deal is." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that easy, That's isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it seems like it should be. Mm-hmm. I know you'd think there's there's a part of you where it's like, well, yeah. I mean, if we can, why not? Oh wait. Oh wait, it's be, it devalues itself. Yeah, and, and confidence. Yeah. I mean, in the news right now, I mean, confidence is is shaky because of the whole uh, Brexit situation. So, yeah, that happened so last night. Our government and the European governments are are scrambling to like to not have everyone just sell everything off. I know if they can. It's so crazy. history repeating itself. Yeah, and speaking of, ha, that was a good segue on my part, but you don't even know what I'm going to say yet. <laughs> Um, but remember at the, the con-con, Nicole, which you coined, hashtag yep. con where Ham talked for six hours and the convention was listless? Yeah. So Hamilton had to read his report on public credit because it was a secret. He had to read all 51 pages, the other 51. He had to read it to the House of Representatives and Chernhouse says that- Something by the, tells me he didn't mind. No, I, I think he was like, oh, really? Sweet. Great. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> Chernhouse says by the end of it, everyone sat there in a stupefied silence. Yeah, he, well- <laughs> He just read it all. Yeah. Well, he wasn't allowed to read it. It was He was actually not allowed into the room because they were worried that it would look like the executive was establishing authority over the legislative branch, but they did have someone read it. Can you imagine reading a small book to <laughs> no. Congress? I mean, I think it would last longer than the recent sit-down. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Oh, I was under the impression that he read it. Still, it's if it, it's hard enough to follow when I'm looking at Chernow describing it. 
I, can you even imagine just hearing someone say that or being the person that doesn't understand it reading the words for 51 pages? Yeah, it sounds like a filibuster, except it wasn't. <laughs> except it wasn't. That's the only time you hear about a congressperson reading just endlessly on the floor to hold the floor. But no, he was actually like hoping that everyone was going to be hanging on his every word for 51 pages. Yeah. And then they had to debate it. Then they ended up debating the whole report, right? And they debated it. <laughs> led, led by Madison. Yeah, this, this was the chapter of the Madison-Hamilton breakup. And Chernow says that it was that breakup that, that led to the beginning of the two-party system. What did I miss? Kind of implies that Jefferson was the one who pissed him off to have a two-party system. But Chernow says that it was this this breakup that led to that conversation. So maybe we'll learn in the next chapter what, you know, that Jefferson came ho-oh-oh. And I think it's uh, interesting, you know, Chernow mentions that at this point, basically, everybody was divided. Either you were on Madison's side or you were on Hamilton's side. Right. And there was, there was, it was very divided. Whose yeah. side are you on? I think they probably if saw it as choose. Washington's side because Washington was still the guy. Well, and it really, as, as Chernow gets into in this chapter, everything really started to break down along northern versus southern sectional lines. And so... You have the issue of slavery is also brought up in this chapter and also brought up in Congress at the same time, around the same time as Hamilton's financial bill. By 84-year-old Ben Franklin. I love that he was 84 years old. Yeah. Still still going after it. Yeah. Yeah. It actually makes sense to me because he was like, you know, what does he care? Because at the time it was still a radical position. It was a absolutely correct right side of history position right but mm-hmm. i think at that point he was like you can call me a radical if you want i'm gonna tell Whatever, you man, I'm gonna I'm speak my conscience what are you gonna do yep yep so so that really splintered along northern and southern lines because the northern states were slowly abolishing slavery whereas it just got stronger in the south as cherno says and so also at the same time breaking up between the northern and, and southern districts were the financial plan because even though as Chernow says it simply wasn't true there became this public perception that the southern soldiers were having all their bonds stolen by evil northern bankers and that just became the narrative that probably also tied into the slavery contest to show you know we're noble southern southern soldiers and everything and so it it just really started to break down between that and not exclusively but that was really the breaking point. And it was a great way to get your attention away from slavery and just mad at Hamilton again to say like, well, not really, but look what look what his debt plan is doing. And he's victimizing the South and all that. Like, let's not talk about the slavery in the South. Like, hey, there's something sparkly. And mm-hmm. once again, Ham was the scapegoat. It was kind of a brilliant thing that Jefferson and Madison did to do that. I mean, it, it was like as terrible as it was smart. Oh, yeah. Hamilton was not a politician. He was an excellent administrator. But he just was not a politician. And, you know, many of these other men were excellent politicians and they they knew what to do. And Turner also talks about how crazy it was that even there was a I think he was from Virginia, but he was definitely from the South. Um, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation, but Adamus Burke. And he was from the South and he supported Alexander Hamilton's assumption plans and his financial plans, but because there was so much pressure from the southern, uh, his southern constituents, randomly he one day in Congress starts talking about a speech that Hamilton had made as a eulogy for General Nathaniel Greene nine months earlier, 
and found this one small quote from the speech and used it and twisted it to say that Hamilton was making fun of Southern militiamen that died and for their country and everything. And it was just so, and on top of that, he used it to call Hamilton a liar, which doesn't even make sense, but it just became, it shows you how charged these things were and how they used other political instruments to sort of get away from the issues at hand. And this was such a intense thing that on the house of Cong, you know, on the floor of Congress for this guy to be calling Hamilton a liar, it almost led to a duel between them. A fair of honor and it was um, sort of put to rest but that was really charged at the time and everyone was talking about the potential of them having to meet at dawn and and Hamilton wasn't insulting militiamen I don't think he was right? insulting Nathaniel Green and he was advocating for a national force a, yeah an army. and he, he was just saying this guy specifically he was calling him out on his views on slavery and he was saying that the guy only like fought and and he only saw what were they say? Oh, he saw action once, and he was really picking on the guy. He could have just said a nice thing, but he's Alexander Hamilton, and he had to go. And you may not Push be a good envelope. politician, but he had to politicize it a little bit. Yeah. So then nine months later, this guy comes along and freaks out on the floor. The congressman had to come in and like ask him to please calm yourself. He, they he, they had to really kind of ask him to put a stop to it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then nothing happened. But it was a big deal for a minute because he personally insulted Ham, which never goes over well. Mm-hmm. And then Hamilton's like, what? Someone's mad at me for calling them out and being terrible and like skewering them in print? I can't believe it. <laughs> he was also, he was like totally flabbergasted that he and Madison had this fight. He never seems to see it coming. Well, because Madison did a complete 180 just, what was it, three years before, two years before, Madison actually wrote in the Federalist Papers, the same principles of respecting contracts, assuming debts and everything. In Madison's own writings, he approved of all these things. And so, of course, Hamilton wouldn't see that that coming because Madison just totally changed his stance on things. I wonder why that is. Do you think he did that to get ahead politically somehow, just to compete? Or maybe he felt like he wouldn't... I I have read that, that interpretation because Madison, of course, was one of the eminent statesman of Virginia, and he was really slighted when Virginia, who was not very happy with Madison's support of the Constitution, because remember in Virginia, it was really 50-50 for a while if Virginia was even going to ratify the Constitution. There was such backlash against him that he wasn't selected as one of the two senators, which was considered the more supreme position at the time. And then when it came to the elections for the House of Representatives, Again, Madison was blocked. They actually maneuvered to block him from his own district to be elected. And I think he had to run as a candidate for the House of Representatives in a completely different district on a technicality just to even get into the House of Representatives. And so there is speculation that I've read from scholars that it might have been political means that sort of influenced him to start supporting Southern interests. But again, I guess we just have to ask Madison. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Let's go ask him, guys. Let's channel Madison and see what he'd say. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he wanted to set himself apart somehow, like he wanted the spotlight in a way that he decided to take a more, to, you know, change his mind and his stance completely. Hamilton talks about how Madison was very smart. You know, he came to the Constitu- Constitutional Convention prepared with all of his, 
studies on different democracies. And so he was very cerebral. He studied. He was very interested in learning about government and everything. But he really didn't have an understanding of finance. He didn't have an understanding. Um, let's see. As John Adams said, Mr. Madison is a studious scholar, but his reputation as a man of abilities is a creature of French puffs. Whoa. <laughs> That doesn't sound complimentary. There's that curmudgeon again. <laughs> I feel like they insulted each other more than they complimented each other, especially now. I mean, in the beginning, in the first couple of chapters, they were they were all, especially with Ham and Lawrence mm-hmm. and the letters about Eliza. But now all these quotes, all these badass quotes are about how much they can't stand each other or disagree with each other politically. Yeah, there's some really awesome 18th century zingers out there that are hilarious. <laughs> Someone needs to publish a book of all those i'm sure there actually there probably is one we have on our website allthingshamilton.com we have a whole collection of hamilton quotes and so you can actually go on and read some of hamilton's quotes about public credit and things which would tie into this chapter but i am working on eventually getting a section up of zingers from hamilton because they're really really hilarious that's perfect you need to make them into a book that's amazing i would Mm -hmm. buy it yeah it's old (laughs) it's still it still exists in the british house of commons it's always a raucous atmosphere. It's amazing. Filled with animosity. It's there's, so fascinating. There's to very watch. for any of you listeners, if you think I'm I'm exaggerating, there are YouTube compilations of the British House of Commons and it is hysterical. Upwards of twenty minutes long, just compilations of Yes. People shouting insults at each other and there's always <laughs> one mild mannered presiding uh, person going, Alda, Alda, Alda Which no one listens to. Yeah. No one listens to. <laughs> Well, you can really imagine what it would have been like at the time um, in the 18th century. Yeah, when the cameras weren't rolling. Yeah, in fact, I don't know, Dr. Duran Freeman, who wrote the book Affairs of Honor, which Lynn used as a reference for the Ten Dual Commandments, she is working on a book talking about all the different violence in politics in the 19th century. And there's some really crazy stories of just duels on the house floor and you know and canings yeah yep canings and leading up to the civil war you name it it has happened in congress (laughs) yeah that is the esteemed body yeah canings on the floor oh yeah the guy that the name's escaping me nicole i'm sure you'll you'll be able to drop this name who's the guy that got caned leading up to the civil war tommy lee jones played him in, in lincoln yeah, there there were a lot of canings, and I know the specific <laughs> one. I didn't know there were, I didn't know there were a number of them. I just oh, thought it was the most. There one. are oh, far too many canings. Be, became really famous, and the name's escaping me as well. But that is horrifying. Yeah, <laughs> and just one final note on chapter fifteen. Sure. Um, Chernow gets into Hamilton. Not only as we mentioned in the, this chapter, he was doing all this other thing, all these other things with finances, but he essentially took over for the State Department and he had, since we didn't have official um, diplomatic relations with England at the time, Hamilton had secret meetings on behalf of Washington with a minister from sent over, an agent sent over from England. And so to protect Hamilton's identity, whenever George Beckwith would write back to England, he used a code name for Hamilton and his code number was seven. So the original 007 was actually Alexander Hamilton. I love wow. that. Cool. 
get I love that. out of here. Move over, James Bond. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I love that because Chernow says that every people thought that he was a, a double secret agent or something. So that works. Yeah. That works out perfectly. Well, yeah, everybody was hating, hating on him because we were also like anti-British at the time still. So yeah, that's why he had to have these meetings in secret. And he had a lot of stipulations and threats. It wasn't he wasn't fawning all over them. Yeah. Chernow makes a really good point that he wasn't just saying, oh, Great Britain, we love you. We want to be, you know, best friends again. But he really stated very strongly that you know we're going to become strong this is a beneficial partnership for you so you can either join us or we're going to overtake you one day with their own tactics essentially yeah Yeah, they they're they're a world power because their economy was working yeah that's the thing that people forgot like he's using these tactics because they happen to be working everybody not because he's a double agent (laughs) secret (laughs) person what are you talking about easy way to slander him at the time (laughs) Oh, well. Yeah, and you can see how, again, like we talked about last time I was here, how these small little slanders that were made in the 1790s are still repeated 200 years later. I still receive messages all the time. Hamilton was a secret agent for Great Britain. And <laughs> it just doesn't even make sense. That's why I think Lynn's, you know, sort of thesis in a way for the whole musical, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, Hamilton has had his story told by these detractors for so many years that it's a lot to sift through and figure out who he really was and what he really contributed to the country. Wouldn't have Yorktown gone a completely different way if Hamilton was actually a double agent? Yep. Right? Alexander Hamilton was not only side by side George Washington for over four years, but writing most of his correspondence. So we never would have won the revolution. I mean, it's yeah, ridiculous. Exactly. And maybe they didn't have Google then, but there's Google now. Yeah. <laughs> so the people sending you those messages, Google it. Allthingshamilton.com. Get get the real info. <laughs> That's right. Well, Nicole, once again, this has been even more informative than we ever could have imagined. <laughs> I love how every time we have a question or a reference, you have a very spe- specific connection to it or know exactly where how it came from. Yeah, where it came and from. Thank and you for putting up with us just interrupting you. <laughs> oh, no, I felt like I was interrupting you. And <laughs> not at all. No, not at all. Not at all. So before we wrap up, celebratehamilton.com, allthingshamilton.com, and the AHA Society on all social media. Is that right? Absolutely. And the ahasociety.org as well. Thank you so much for telling us about um, this summer and all the events. We will definitely try to stop by to at least one for sure. We'll, totally. We'll definitely, we'll have to have a little cabinet meeting <laughs> after this. And <laughs> Everyone's welcome to be in the room where it all happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or the or the picnic place the or picnic wherever. Where it happens. Mm-hmm. The, the falls where it happens. happens. Yeah. The fun run where it happens. <laughs> the dueling ground where it happens. <laughs> Doesn't work as well. <laughs> There's a lot that happens. So <laughs> I know. Be a part of it. <laughs> Thank you again also for explaining Chernow and again in a more accessible way because this one was a little tricky and I'm sure our listeners are very grateful as as we are that you were here to help very us grateful. Uh, talk through it. I am at Jillian with a G. My show with Mike is The Residuals. You can Woo. get it at theresiduals.tv. That's right. Featuring recent uh, Orange is the New Black alums, Emily Tarver and Michael Torpy. Yeah. Oh, oh. M- Michael Torpy gets, <gasps> no spoilers, but. Whoa, gets crazy. Whoa, whoa, I haven't started yet. Don't I'm not, I'm not going to say anything, but anything. I, I've said today, <gasps> Torpy. I'm like, man, like <gasps> I can't believe he's. This is my friend. This Michael is my friend. <laughs> oh my God. Um, anyway, we can find you where? I am at MP Smith NYC. On all the things. On all the things.
I'm underscore Bianca Jean underscore on Twitter and Instagram. You can find all Hamilcast things at thehamilcast.com, at thehamilcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can shoot us an email at thehamilcast at gmail.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Nicole, will you do our sign-off with us again? Absolutely. And yes. I came up with a new sign-off. <gasps> Ooh, oh, my God. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, you'll go last and bring us home, okay? All right, let's do it. All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And happy July 4th, everyone. Happy July 4th. Happy Independence Day. Happy July 2nd. Woo! <laughs> yes, happy July 2nd, but really. Happy July 2nd. Somewhere everybody. John Adams is like, I like uh, that, Nicole. Yes. I like her. <laughs> she uh, finally. She's talking about. Uh, thank you again, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. I'm G.Pen. I'm B.So. I am M.Smith. And I'm N. Dutch. <gasps> Ooh, that was a good ending. Thanks, Villainous. Nicole. <laughs>